If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them with me to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. It was a great week at VBS, and as we talked about, I uh, had 14 children that professed faith in Christ as Lord and Savior, and uh, a lot of others, they, absolutely, absolutely, a lot of others that had questions and took steps towards the Lord. Uh, one thing that I always want to caution you with, and I don't know why this happens sometimes, but Whenever you have children that come to the Lord, I'll, I'll occasionally come across someone who says, yeah, but they're kids. Don't do that, okay? Don't do that. Uh, how many of you came to the Lord early in life, in, in childhood? How many of you guys came to the Lord in childhood? A lot of you guys, and it, it looks like that conversion stuck, right? Uh, same thing happened in my life. I became a believer at the age of six, and it, it was one of those moments that has changed the entire trajectory of my life. And if you actually do research, you find that, that uh, the decisions that people make regarding the Lord in childhood often are, are the same spiritual fabric that they show whenever they get to 40 and 50 years of age. It's really amazing to me how much of life does hinge upon a few critical decisions. Whenever you're 18 and you're graduating from high school, you begin making that decision as to what type of career am I going to have? What am I going to study? Where am I going to go with my life? A lot of times whenever you're 25 to 30-ish, uh, you make that decision as who, who's going to be my mate? Who am I going to marry? Whenever you get into your late 20s, early 30s, a lot of times you begin entering into that parent stage where you're raising a child, and they, and they tell me that as you get into the 40s and 50s that there's often a shift that begins to occur as you move from striving for success to striving for significance. But all through life, if, if you look back, uh, there are critical moments, turning point moments where you make decisions that then affect the rest of your life. And a lot of times those decisions occur during windows of opportunity. If you don't seize that opportunity, often the moment moves on and, and the opportunity is no longer there. And so you look back over your life and you see that sometimes you made the right decision. I look back over my life and I remember at age 26 whenever I met this beautiful young lady named Stacy and I eventually, through much begging, talked her into marrying me and that was the right decision, right? I, I married over my head and I look back and I'm like, I seized that opportunity. I, I did well, but sometimes we make the wrong decisions. I remember when there was this new company that just come onto the scene called Google, and uh, I had a little bit of money to invest, and I was thinking, you know, I've used that on the Internet. That's a pretty good product. I bet I could do well on that. But I thought, nah, the stock's too high. It was like $50 a share at that time, and I think closed at $531 a share last Friday. So, uh, missed opportunity right there. You know, uh, the most tragic thing is to live your life so consumed with the here and now that the spiritual side of you goes through life blind. That you're so busy with everything that needs to be done that spiritually you're dead. That spiritually you might even become antagonistic towards things that are of a spiritual nature because you've got so much to do in the here and now. In Mark chapter 11, Jesus is questioned by the chief justices of his land. In Mark chapter 11 and verse 27, 
they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple complex, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came, and they asked him, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do these things? You say, well, what kind of radical things was Jesus doing? Well, he was healing people. He was teaching the Word of God. And so those that are supposed to be in authority, those that are the ultimate religious leaders within Judaism at that time, come to Jesus and they say, okay, uh, who, who do you think you are? We didn't give you a, a, a license here. We didn't graduate you from our seminary. Who do you think that you are to do this? Well, Jesus in verse 29 says to them, I will ask you one question and then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Was John's baptism from heaven or from men? Answer me. Now, this is pure greatness right here because Jesus really puts him into a rhetorical corner here because John was viewed by the people as extremely popular, as a man of God. He, uh, the, the people there in Palestine really had an appreciation for who John was and for his ministry. And naturally, the chief priest and the, those that were in authority uh, had, had worked to bring about his demise. And so he's putting them in this corner because they don't really have a good answer. And so in verse 31, they began to argue amongst themselves. All right. If we say from heaven, then he will say, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, they were afraid of the crowd because everyone thought that John was a genuine prophet. And so these, these religious leaders, these very highly esteemed men, they come out of their holy huddle and they come back to Jesus and they say, uh, we don't know, no clue. And Jesus said to them, then neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. If you don't know if John came from heaven or earth, then why do I need to report to you? Well, at that, Jesus begins to share a parable. Now, we're in this series of messages called His Stories, where we're looking at a lot of the parables of Jesus, and that's why we land here at this parable today. He began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a, a vineyard put a fence around it, and dug out a pit for a wine press and built a watchtower. So you can imagine the scene. There's this large vineyard, a fence around it. There's a pit for the wine press, which is how they were going to make money out of the vineyard, and then they would sell the harvest, and it would be profitable. But he leased it to the tenant farmers, and he went away. At harvest time, he sent a slave to the farmers to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard from the farmers. But they took him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another slave to them, and they hit him on the head and treated him shamefully. And then he sent another, and they killed that one. He also sent many others, and they beat some, and they killed some. He still had one to send, a beloved son. And finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenant farmers said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him, 
and threw him out of the vineyard. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the farmers and give the vineyard to the others. Haven't you read this? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came from the Lord and is wonderful in our eyes. Because they knew he had said this parable against them, they were looking for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Now, to a large extent, the parable is about missed opportunities, particularly the relationship between God and the nation of Israel. Now, as you look through your biblical history, you understand that God elected Israel for uh, roles within his plan. Whenever you get to uh, Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, you see uh, the way in which God's election of Israel played out throughout the history of the Old Testament. And it is through Israel that the law would be given. It is through Israel that Jesus would be born. It is through Israel that almost all the biblical writers would emerge And one of the roles of Israel that is often overlooked was that Israel was called to proclaim the name and the fame of God to the nations. You see this in stories like Jonah, where he was called to proclaim the name and fame of God to the Gentile people. And certainly after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you see that motif begin to unfold all the way through the pages of Scripture. So within Israel's history, there were moments when they followed God And then there were moments where they turned away. And there was almost a repeatable story. God would speak. He would reveal himself in some way. The people would repent. And then they would experience the blessings of God. And then again, they would turn to their own way. That cycle is most readily seen in the book of Judges. And so now was the ultimate turning point. Because God had sent his son, his only begotten son, to live within their midst. He tabernacled among them, as John said. And Jesus was literally doing the work of God in the flesh. He was teaching the Scriptures of God. He was ministering to people. He was being God incarnate. Now, tragically, with Jesus in their midst, many did not even recognize him as God. In fact, those that were supposed to be the most religious among them saw Jesus as evil rather than good. In fact, Jesus describes this as what it's like for your mind to have really been given over to the devil, where you come to this point where you begin to see good as evil and evil as good. And so within the parable. The owner represents God, and the farmers are the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, those that came to him questioning his authority. The fruit was the harvest that God expected. The murdered servants were the prophets of the Old Testament, and the son was Jesus. And Jesus tells his audience, you're missing it all. God has given you an opportunity. I'm right here in front of you. And you're missing it. You are so consumed with superficial, earthly things that you're missing the spiritual, heavenly realities of God. Ultimately, their sin was twofold. 
Number one, they were caught up in pride. And because of their pride, they were putting themselves above God. They were putting themselves in roles that rightfully belonged to God. They also were guilty of idolatry. They were trying to fashion God into something that was more palatable to them. So they fashioned God into false images that they could teach and serve and that they could uh, put into their mold of what God should be. And so as you get to the end of the parable, the result is that God was going to take away the opportunity and give it to another. And you ultimately see this through the call of Paul as God begins to work through the Gentile nations. I believe that, that we too are living at a turning point time in history. We're living in one of those windows of opportunity where God is speaking, God is revealing himself in great ways, and there's a question for God's people, and that is, are, are we going to miss it? Are we going to be so consumed with the here and now, with the images of God that we fashion in our mind? Are we going to be so consumed with ourselves that we completely miss out on the spiritual realities of our day. Now, as we look at society, one of the things that's undeniable is that communications are drastically changing our world. I was thinking back over my lifetime. And I remember in my lifetime when a website was where a spider lived. You remember that? Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I look back, I, I remember my first cell phone. It was like in a bag, and you carried this bag around. And I remember the charger for it. it, it the charger was literally like this big, and you could, you could charge it up with this big. I mean, that was just a few years ago. Stacy and I will celebrate 18 years in August of marriage, and I was thinking about when we got married, really not that long ago, Okay. But when we got married and we were planning our honeymoon and trying to decide where we wanted to go, we went down to the bookstore and got a book on 100 best honeymoon destinations. And then we started looking around, and I would call places and say, can you send me a pamphlet? And then they would mail me a pamphlet in the mail, and we would, like, look through it, you know, and, and examine it, and we had an atlas that we would like figure out, okay, we would have to drive this many miles. And, and that was how we planned our honeymoon less than two decades ago. We live in an era where things change. And they are changing at a rapid pace. Uh, this week, we saw that the secular understanding of marriage in America was officially changed the secular understanding. I would encourage you to note this. The biblical understanding of marriage remains unchanged. Okay? All this change can be a bit confusing sometimes. Uh, we now live in a world where uh, gender is declarative. You can declare yourself a woman stuck in a man's body who's not attracted to men but married to a woman 
And by declaring yourself this, you can earn a courage award from the sports station. It's just a little confusing to me. Um, now here in the last couple of weeks, uh, we've entered a new frontier. Rachel Dolezal is now actively arguing that race is declarative, that you have the right to declare whatever race you identify with. And it's all a bit confusing. Kind of the, the rapidity of change is just really difficult to, to keep up with. And you have to be really careful what thoughts you embrace these days because anything that you embrace is subject to change. And so Christian beliefs are being pushed to the margins within the community of ideas. And um, there's a, a more frequent cry, okay, uh, as Christians, there are certain truths that you need to abandon that are often centuries-old truths. But you need to abandon these truths in order to make sure that you live in the times. And if you refuse to abandon the truth, we're going to push you as far as we can to the margins of the dialogue. Now, secularist, and here's what I mean by a secularist. Uh, first of all, someone who might be atheistic or agnostic in their belief system. A secularist could also be somebody that is what we call a religious nun. Now, they don't have any religious identification. They might consider themselves spiritual, but it's an ambiguous spirituality. And so in the latest census, we found that one of the, gro- the largest growing demographics in America are the religious nuns. They're secularist. And if you're a secularist, then you have to live in real time because it's all you have. You know, if, if you're a secularist, you don't live life with eternity in mind, uh, in, in the Christian faith, with heaven in mind, and in some other faith systems with uh, uh, the, the bigger picture of the universe in mind. But if you are a secularist, you have to grab a hold of the here and now, and you have to live in real time, and, and you better not let go of it. And so as I, as I think about how this begins to unfold within our culture, inevitably, secularism plus wealth leads to superficiality intoxication. You become drunk with things that don't really matter and don't really have depth. There's a reason people wanted to kill Jesus. His message challenges those who are drunk in foolishness to sober up. The message of Jesus has always been sharp. It was then, it is now. Now, we as, as Christians, and I'm talking today to the church, and if you understand your theology of the church, the, the church is composed of those who are believers in Jesus Christ and those who have publicly proclaimed that faith through baptism. 
There are others that gather with the church to worship that might not yet be believers, and they are welcomed and invited. But the church itself is what we call a regenerate membership. We have been born again by the Spirit of God. And as the church, we have a unique context within the social order. And, and what has happened over the last 10 years has in some ways helped us in this. Because now the contrast between church and state is much more clear. There's also a, another contrast that's being developed, and that is the contrast between those that live in real time, in, in, in the moment, and those that live with a faith that is anchored in heritage. And our faith as believers is anchored in 6,000 years of human history. And I I want you to make sure that you wrap your mind around this. These truths that we sing about, these truths that we preach and teach, these truths that we challenge our children to embrace in their lives as well, billions of people over thousands of years have lived and died by these truths. They have stood the test of time. They don't change from week to week. They don't change from generation to generation. They are truths that we believe come from our Creator. And so I encourage you to take caution with the rapidity of change that is being proclaimed. Do not embrace an unstable faith that is void of depth in favor of the popularity of the moment. Hear me well on this. The stability of your faith will sustain you in the instability of our times. Part of what makes our faith beautiful is that it has depth. It has heritage. People have lived and died by it. In a rapidly changing world, it is something that we embrace, something that we anchor our life within. It provides us an identity. It provides us a stability that no one or nothing changes. And so let me share with you a passage of Scripture from Hebrews 13. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. I don't believe we have it uh, on the screen behind me uh, because I, I threw this in late at the media people. But let me share with you this passage of Scripture that God used to speak to me this week. And I hope it'll speak to you as well. Hebrews 13 and verse 4. It begins with this idea. Marriage must be respected by all and the marriage bed kept undefiled because God will judge immoral people and adulterers. Your life should be free from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have. 
For he himself said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Now let's just pause there for a second. The scriptures here are speaking to some people that don't have much. And and the writer of Hebrews says, your life should be free from the love of money. And then he says, be satisfied with what you have. But I want you to make sure that you grab a hold of the context here because he's not telling them to be satisfied with the house that you have or the chariot that you have or the, the, the pair of sandals that you have. He says, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So when he says, be satisfied with what you have, he's telling them, be satisfied with Jesus. Be satisfied that as a believer, whether or not you have much when it comes to financial means, whether or not you have much when it comes to the here and now, you have something that that will never forsake you or leave you. You have Jesus. And so he says then in verse 6, Therefore, we may boldly say, Okay, not quiet, not, you know, shy here. Therefore, we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. So I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders who have spoken God's word to you. Again, he's not here talking about governmental leaders. He's talking about spiritual leaders, those people in your life who have been spiritual mentors to you. Remember your leaders who have spoken God's word to you as you carefully observe the outcome of their lives, imitate their faith. And then there's the verse that just screamed to me this week. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Our faith is not tethered to the superficialities of this world. You're going to struggle in your faith until you really learn to live in the spiritual realm. Until you begin to realize that there is going to be this lifelong wrestling between your flesh, the here and now, the physical realm, and your spirit, you're going to wrestle in your faith. To grow in your faith, you have to grow spiritually. You have to begin moving towards the spiritual realm and the perspective of the Holy Spirit. We as believers are called to live in the spiritual realm, and your spirit extends beyond the hundred-year window that is your life. And it's because of that that those who believe in Christ have a divine opportunity that must be seized to live differently than everyone else. In a world where everything is changing We proclaim Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. There is one thing that cannot be done. You cannot put Jesus back in the tomb. Calvary's box has been opened, he is risen. And the results of the resurrection will never go away. The parable that we looked at ends with, and so they began to plot to arrest and kill Jesus. 
People have been trying to kill Jesus for 2,000 years. They've been trying to silence his message for millennia. But guess what? He's still alive. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And as Christians, we live with the understanding that the Spirit of God is alive in us. And so in a world that is changing, in a world that is caught up in whatever the news of the moment might be, and that news cycle changes so quickly, I actually went back and did a little project last night and looked at the main news websites and discovered that what was the news of the day on Friday was no longer even above the fold on the website. The news is continually changing. The causes are continually changing. The thought processes are continually changing. People crusade for something today, and then they're crusading for something else the next day. What was important to people one day is not important to them the next day. But in this world where everything is changing, Christians have been called to live as salt and light and proclaim the simple message that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, who was sent to live a life that none of us could live, who died on the cross for your sins and mine, who overcame the sting of death, who rose again, ascended, and is coming coming back. And we're called to go and proclaim that simple message that whoever believes in Him, turning from sin to Christ, is forgiven of sin and lives forever with Him. We're called to lead people to the spiritual realm so that they see life beyond the superficial. And they live life with depth. And they become spiritually alive in Christ. For you to take your place in the social order that God has called you to, you have to be alive spiritually. You have to become a spiritually minded person. You have to draw close to the Holy Spirit so that you can see things see things through the wisdom of the Spirit of God. And I fully believe within my soul that if God's people rise up to the cause, if God's people rise up in our perspective and begin being spiritually minded people, that we will truly be salt and light within this world as we proclaim a simple message that doesn't change. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. Aren't you glad that he'll never forsake you nor abandon you? And because of that, you can be bold in your faith. Would you be so kind as to stand with me, please, as we bow our heads and come to a time of commitment. Paul's going to come lead us in a invitation hymn. Heavenly Father, I... I do pray that we might be uh, authentic in our walk. I, I think of these that were the chief priests and the elders and the scribes, and, and they were very religious people. They were cultural believers. But, Father, their heart was not in tune with your spirit. And when your son came and dwelt among them, they couldn't even see it. And I pray, Lord, that we might not miss the spiritual for the temporal. Help us, Lord, to 
sober up from superficiality, intoxication, to see things as they are, to love you more. Help us, Lord, to love all people as we proclaim the message that brings true satisfaction to all people. We're mindful that a lot of times people grab a hold of things because they're longing for satisfaction. They're longing for fulfillment. So they grab onto something and in time find that it doesn't satisfy. So Lord, I pray that we might find satisfaction by having our thirst quenched by the living waters of Jesus Christ. And may we realize that even though we may not have much, when we have you, we have everything. It's in Jesus' name we worship. Amen.